Alrighty, well, if you have a Bible, let's hear from the Lord and let's turn to Proverbs chapter 1. And we'll title the message today, The Fear of the Lord is the Beginning of Wisdom. So we'll read in Proverbs chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, and judgment and equity, to give subtlety to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. And he says, a wise man will hear and will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsel. To understand a proverb and the interpretation of the words of the wise, and their dark sayings. And verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And Father, we come before you, Lord, and we just ask that you'll speak to us clearly through your word and instruct our hearts in how to fear you and how to walk with you so that we can receive the blessings that you have for us. And I thank you that you'll do that for us today in Jesus' name. You know, when I was a teenager... A few years back, the Lord started dealing with me when I was about a junior in high school about I was lost going to hell and the Catholic Church just wasn't going to get me to heaven. And I started searching for truth. You know, I try to read the Bible as best I could, and I liked reading the Gospels. The other place I liked to read a lot was Proverbs, and I thought I could understand, you know, what was in there. You know, they always seem like wise sayings to live by, you know, whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtain favor of the Lord. I kind of made that a goal as my teenager, I want to find me a nice wife. And or he that has friends must show himself friendly. So I'm like, all right, I think I need to smile a little more and get me some more friends or whatever. But I'm going to just ask you, is that what Proverbs are? You know, are they just some wise sayings that just anybody can profit from, sane or sinner? Because there was a lot of wisdom books even around. That was a big thing back then, even like it is today, that were written. So like, for instance, this little wise saying from the wisdom book in Assyria they write, I have lifted sand, I have carried salt, but there is nothing which is heavier than grief. I'm like, that sounds like a Johnny Cash song. <laughs> Not quite fitting in the Bible. Or, you know, are they like Benjamin Franklin's, you know, Poor Richard's Almanac, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Or Thomas always drills John with these things, like every week we have a new one, you know, a penny saved is a penny earned, and, or whatever. Or people wrapped in themselves make small packages. Or I really like this one, this is the last one I'll give you. Fish and visitors stink after three days. <laughs> so it's like, is that what Proverbs is all about, you know? Cute observations, put out a truth or give some practical advice that, you know, don't leave your fish out very long or whatever, that help you get through life. So verse one, it tells us there, they're the Proverbs of Solomon. So the question is, what is a proverb? And so the word proverb actually in the Hebrew comes from a, a verb that means to represent or to be like. And what they are, well, what we have in the book of Proverbs are, they're little models of reality or a verbal image it gives us of our daily lives. So we can look at a proverb, any of these proverbs we have, we can read it, examine it, and meditate on it and learn something about how life will be before we go out and experience it. You know, so the world says live and learn, and God says learn and live, just the opposite. That's what we're getting in Proverbs. So, you know, I thought this man gave a pretty good illustration to illustrate what I'm talking about. And he said, you know, the Wright brothers, they flew their airplane for the first time in 1903, 
And when they did that, they weren't wondering. They knew that it was going to take off and fly when they did it. And how did they know? It's because they built a wind tunnel and they tested all these different wing designs. And so they knew before they got out there and risked their necks, which one of these wings designs were actually gonna work. And that's what Proverbs is. It's given us real life situations and they show us what is gonna fly and what is gonna crash. So as another man said, you know, we're invited to reflect on the world through Proverbs, on human experience, and we can learn lessons which help us to cope better manage our affairs, to avoid damaging mistakes, foster better relationships. In summary, what we're learning is God has designed, he's the creator and designer of this world, and he says, you follow the wisdom I give you in Proverbs, and you will live and prosper in his ways. And so the fool, he says, doesn't listen to that and goes his own way. So for example, a little snapshot, he that walks with wise men shall be wise, that'll fly. God's saying, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. That's going to crash you for what we're saying, all right? So, you know, a proverb is basically just a compressed statement of wisdom. And it's crafted that it's going to strike you, something that you can remember. It's going to be thought-provoking and practical in our lives. So that's what a proverb is, and it's the Proverbs of Solomon. And I want to look at something. We haven't looked at this section for a long time, but what is it that made Solomon so uniquely prepared? He wrote most of the Proverbs, not all of them, but what made him so uniquely prepared? If you put something there in Proverbs 1 and go back to 1 Kings chapter 3, I want to look at a few things here in Kings about Solomon's life. 1 Kings chapter 3, and we'll come back to Proverbs 1 here in a minute. So 1 Kings 3.1, and we read there, it says, And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Only the people sacrificed in high places because there was no house built in the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and burnt incest in high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon that altar. And in Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give thee. You can have whatever you want. And Solomon said, you have showed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And you have kept for him this great kindness that thou hast given unto him a son, me, to sit on his throne as it is this day. And he says, and now, O Lord, my God, you have made thy servant king instead of my father David. And I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. And give, therefore, thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this, thy so great a people? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said unto him, Because you have asked this thing, it has not asked for thyself long life, neither hast thou asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but you have asked for thyself understanding to discern 
judgment. And God says, Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given you a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, and neither after thee shall there arise any like unto thee. And I have also given thee what you didn't ask for. This is something, men, young men especially, let's pay attention to what Solomon's done here, what he's after. I've given you the thing you didn't ask for. Riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if you will walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as thy father David did walk, I will lengthen thy days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and offered peace offerings and made a feast to all his servants. And we're going to go on and read the rest of the chapter because here we're going to see, we know it, but we're going to read it again. We haven't read it in a while. This shows how this wisdom that God granted him was worked out in a practical way. I think it's a neat story, and I want to read it, so just follow with me. And then came there two women that were harlots unto the king and stood before him. And the one woman said, O oh my Lord, I and this woman dwell in one house, and I was delivered of a child with her in the house. And it came to pass the third day after that I was delivered that this woman was delivered also, and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house save we two in the house. And this woman's child died in the night because she laid on it. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while thine handmaid slept and laid it in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to give my child suck, behold, it was dead. But when I had considered it in the morning, behold, I'm thinking, this isn't my son, which I did bear. And the other woman said, no, but the living is my son and the dead is thy son. And this said, no, but the dead is thy son and the living is my son. Thus they spake before the king. And then said the king, The one saith, This is my son that lives, and thy son is dead. And the other saith, Nay, but thy son is dead, and my son is the living. And the king said, Bring me a sword. And they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. And then spake the woman whose the living child was unto the king, for her bowels yearned upon her son. And she said, Oh, my Lord, Give her the living child, and in no way slay it. But the other said, Ah, let it be neither mine nor thine. Let's split it in half. And the king answered and said, Give her the living child, and in no wise slay it, for she is the mother thereof. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. And let me just say this. I'm going to say it again a little bit. Do you all realize that the Holy Spirit would only come on certain people in the Old Testament for purposes? Kings, prophets, artisans. But guess what we have here in the New Testament? Dispensation. The Holy Spirit is given to all of us. And so we read, I read that story about the wisdom in Solomon. I'm like, man, that is great. Only God could give somebody that kind of wisdom. But guess what? What I want to say is he's given that potential to all of us if we're just trusting for it. James 1 says what? Does any of you lack wisdom for any trial you're in, what you're facing, any situation, don't know how to deal with life in whatever way? And he says, ask of God. He gives liberally, and he says he will not upbraid. And what's that saying? He is not going to get on your case for asking. Like, man, you ought to know what to do. Uh, most of the time we don't, do we? And he says he'll give it. He just says we just have to ask in faith. Just trust him. 
that your heavenly father will be like your earthly father and give you the wisdom and advice you need. Amen? I think that's encouraging to read about that. Also, I want to look in chapter 4. We see God granted Solomon's prayer, and we see a, an example there of how that worked out. And look over in chapter 4, verse 29. It says, And God gave Solomon, God gave him wisdom and understanding exceeding much and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt. Now, that's something. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan, the Ezraite, and Heman, the Chacol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all nations round about. And he spake 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were a thousand and five. And he spoke of trees from the cedar tree that was in Lebanon, even unto the hyssop that springeth out of the wall. He spake also of beasts and of fowl and of creeping things and of fishes. And there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth, which had heard of his wisdom. I mean, wow. So Solomon is what is called in modern language, he was a renaissance man. And that's a man that has many talents and many areas of knowledge. If you read Ecclesiastes, Solomon's one of these guys, he says, I wanted to find out about everything I possibly could on earth. I tried everything out. I didn't withhold anything for myself, is what he says in Ecclesiastes. You know, and it talks here, he wants to know about plants, trees, the cedars of Lebanon, the great cedars of Lebanon, to this vine that's sneaking through a crack in the wall. He wants to know what's going on with that. <laughs> so he studied animals, composed music. His viewpoint on all this stuff is he is saying this came from the wise Lord, creator of all. That's how he's looking at it. He's not looking at it like somebody that's not sure they believe in God or some scientist that's trying to deny the reality of God. And God's given him wisdom in looking all of that. So he's saying, hey, all of this creation... All of these things with men, all of this has a purpose. All of this has a voice. It speaks to us of God's wisdom. It speaks to us in a lot of ways. God instructs us through his creation, Solomon would say. Go to the ant, because he did, and he watched it. He tells us, go to the ant, you sluggard. You got a problem getting up and going to work, he's saying, man. Just go down in your basement and watch an ant. That ant's not having trouble going to work, and he's lifting 20 million times his size and weight, and he's diligent about it, and them little guys will get in the line and just keep going back. They got all day, but they keep going at it all day long. Look at the ant. Consider his ways, Solomon says, because I did, and you can be wise. That's what we get out of Proverbs. So we look at the world and life when we see Proverbs from a biblical worldview the wisdom of Proverbs, and we see that there's a higher meaning to things, whether it's money, sex, worth ethics, integrity, every aspect of our life. That's what we're going to get out of reading the book of Proverbs. And it says in the Bible, we just read it, that the kings and people from all over the earth came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. He spoke 3,000 Proverbs, and every one of them would be worth hearing. We don't have 3,000 of them. We're missing a few, and over 1,000 songs. I don't know why it's 1,000 and five, but that's what it is. That's what it said, a thousand and five. Well, listen, there's one notable person that we hear about in the New Testament. She's like, I have got to see this guy for myself. So we're in chapter four. Turn over just a few more chapters to chapter 10. The queen of Sheba. Now let's just look there real quick. The first nine verses of chapter 10. 
1 Kings 10, 1 through 9. It says, And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions. There was not one thing hid from the king which he told her not. And so listen, if you have an opportunity, you need to talk to a child, a friend, some situation, somebody at work, that's when you need to pray for God to give you wisdom, and he'll do it, just like he did here for Solomon. Or somebody wants to ask you a question about the Bible, you're doing your Bible reading, and just pray and ask God to give you the answer to help them out, and he'll do it, just like this, what we read happened here. In verse 4, it says, When the queen of Sheba had seen all of Solomon's wisdom in the house that he had built, and the meat of his table, and the sitting of his servants, and the attendance of his ministers, and their apparel, and his cupbearers, and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land, man, that's how far it spread, of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit, I believed not the words until I came, and my eyes had seen it, and behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceeds the fame which I heard. Verse 8, she says, Happy are thy men. Happy are these thy servants which stand continually before thee and that hear thy wisdom. And blessed be the Lord thy God which delights in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore he made thee king to do judgment and justice. Israel had it made at that point. They did. They had peace. Solomon was a reign of peace, great wealth, and all the nations of the earth. They're saying, you have got the greatest leader by far. She was like, man, God must really love this people to give them a leader like you. A wise king that'll do justice and judgment. And isn't that the way it is in any nation? I mean, even in America, don't we look back? I mean, who are the presidents that we reverence? It's not the ones that have all these affairs and problems or whatever all else, right? It's the guys that reign with justice and judgment. George Washington, if they still teach about him in school, well, they probably don't, but they used to. And he was a man like that. Or Abraham Lincoln, that guy, you know, whether he's saved or not, I have no idea, but that guy had a lot of wisdom in how to govern affairs and kept this nation together. Or just recently, I think President Reagan was that way. Just a man that had led in justice and judgment. And that's what we have here with Israel. They are at the peak. They went from bondage in Egypt, a nothing people, and they are right now king of the hill. But here's the problem with all this. Did it last? I mean, this is their apex as a nation in the Old Testament. It didn't even last through the life of Solomon. Didn't even last through his life. He couldn't even walk in the own wisdom that he preached, and neither did Israel. So you don't have to be married to understand that it was a sure sign Solomon was losing his grip on wisdom when he married 700 wives and 300 concubines. And I'm saying what he was losing in wisdom, he had to be gaining in energy because they're keeping him busy. So what happens? The kingdom splits after Solomon died, and later the whole nation is what? The whole nation that at this point, I mean, things look great. It's like God had fulfilled what he said he would. And it wasn't that much longer. The whole nation is left literally in ruins sent into exile because of their rebellion to God. 
And so what do we see with all this? What is God showing us and showing the nation of Israel all through the entire Old Testament? And all of it is saying there is this great need for who? The Lord Jesus Christ. It's all pointing to him. You know, two of the greatest kings, David and his son Solomon, they were still what? Sinners. Great failings they had in their life, right? So he's saying, hey, the greatest earthly kings are going to fail. And haven't we heard that? I've heard that all through. There is only going to come one righteous government. The answer is not in the United States democracy, which is considered the great experiment. We are seeing it literally fall apart before our eyes. And the only government that will ever work in this world, it will come during the millennium, and it will be what is known as a benevolent dictatorship, ruled and reigned by the Lord Jesus Christ in his wisdom, in his righteousness, and true judgment, and all this oppression, all the complaints people have, everything will be gone during that time. And we'll know what God intended for this earth to be like during those thousand years. And that's why we pray, thy kingdom come. The kingdoms of this world are going to be a mess. They're not ruled by God. Technically, he's sovereign over them, but they are not ruled by God, right? And what did Jesus say of himself? He said, the queen of the south, we just read about it, shall rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And he says, look, behold, a greater than Solomon is here standing right in front of you. <laughs> he say, look, Solomon was great. We just read it that he was the wisest man before and after, except for one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody's going to excel him in anything. And he's just saying, look, I am what Solomon was pointing to. I'm the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. And he's telling Israel, you could not live up to the wisdom of Solomon because you needed the one that is greater than Solomon, the one who was the source of all of Solomon's wisdom. Because Jesus is God. He gave Solomon all his wisdom. It's the spirit of Christ that spoke through those prophets that gave Solomon his wisdom, that gave him his songs. But he is not only the source of wisdom, but he's the source of something else that Solomon could never give them back then Israel do you know what that was what he couldn't give them and that is the grace to walk in that wisdom that's what Israel asked the grace and power that comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and so God has provided for us New Testament Saints through the new birth and the power of the Holy Spirit the power and ability to hear to understand and to walk in the wisdom of Proverbs and Israel could never do that they never could do that. But now, like I said earlier, we have the God of all wisdom living inside of us. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, But of the Father are you in union with Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us. Wisdom is the first thing mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1.30. Jesus is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And so as we read the word, meditate on scripture, and yield to the work of the Holy Spirit, like I said, we can pray for God to give us the wisdom and direction we need, and he will do it. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. We can walk in the wisdom of Proverbs. So I'm saying the wisdom of Proverbs is not written for sinners. It's written for redeemed people like us, Christians to show us how we can walk in a wicked world.
That's what it's for. So it's not for the world, but for God's children. And so how do I know that it's only written for the redeemed people with a redeemed heart? Because what are the characteristics of someone that is a regenerate person, a redeemed person, a born-again person? What's one of the characteristics? Well, one of them is they love God or have the love of God in them, right? Isn't that a chief characteristic? The love of God, Romans 5 says, is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which was given unto us. That's important, isn't it? But what is another equally, in God's eyes, equally important characteristics besides his love? Do you know what it is? Knowing the fear of God equally is important. That's our text. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is the foundation of wisdom is what it's saying there. And that is what God wanted for Israel, but it couldn't happen. And so turn back to Exodus, if you would. Exodus 20, verses 18 through 20. Exodus 20, verses 18 through 20, it says, And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But don't let God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, he said, Fear not, for here is what's happening. He says, God is come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that you sin not. And let me ask you this. Did it work? Did what he did work? I would say no, because Israel sinned and sinned and sinned, as we said, until God finally had to remove him. So they had wicked hearts. And without giving all these verses, the quality of a wicked heart is there is no fear of God in the heart. And so God sent Jeremiah to the nation of Israel. It's in Jeremiah chapter 2. And he says this to them. Listen to what he said. These are people, he wanted to have this fear in their heart, but it wasn't there. And Jeremiah says, your own wickedness shall correct you, and thy backsliding shall reprove you. He says, know therefore and see it that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord thy God. And look what he ends with saying, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord of hosts. So Jeremiah, the prophet, comes to them. He says, it's an evil, and it will be a bitter thing for you all that the fear of God is not in your hearts. Because why? It brought about their judgment at the hand of the Babylonians. So listen, people cringe, and it's not spoken about, and you look long and hard for books today put out on the fear of God. I went to a seminary where that is downplayed very much. Very little is spoken about it. And I'm saying, it's not something to cringe when you hear about that, it's something to pray for. That's what I heard early on when I got saved and in this faith walk, as I would hear teaching, you need to pray for God to put a holy fear in your heart. And I did. And I think we should. It's a healthy thing. It'll keep you from sin and from turning away from God, and it will bring you life. Because, look, God didn't give up on his people Israel. They didn't have that happen in the Old Testament, but that's not the end of the story for them. Or for any of us. So if you would also, I want you to see the opposite side of this and turn over to Jeremiah 32. Please, Jeremiah 32. Because this is the new covenant promise. And it's what has happened to us. And will happen to Israel. God talks about after he brings them back and appears to them. Jeremiah 32, beginning in verse 37. God says, Behold, I will gather them 
Israel, out of all countries, whether I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury and in great wrath, I will bring them again, though, into this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. And he says what in verse 38? They shall be my people, and I will be their God. And verse 39, I will give them one heart and one way. And what does he say after that? That they may fear me forever. They never did that. They never had that. It's an important thing. It's a blessing to have a robust fear of God in your heart. That they will fear me forever. Why? For the good of them and of their children after them. And he says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. He says it again, but I will put my fear in their hearts. Why? What is the good? That they shall not depart from me. Yea, he says, I will rejoice over them to do them good. I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. So can you see? It's a blessing. It's something to pray for, for God to put a fear of him in your heart. It's something that we should have. It should come with the new birth and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So what did we have in the New Testament? We looked at the Old Testament. Jesus told us to fear God, did he not? Our Lord and Savior, the one that's going to take us to heaven, the one we've committed our life to, he says, don't fear them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But he says, rather, fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And I'm telling you, the cure for lust, the divine cure for lust, as we'll see, is the fear of God. Because Proverbs 5 and 6, it gives a fuller version of what Jesus gives on the Sermon on the Mount as far as this is what you need to do if you want to overcome lust. And what did Paul say? We're talking about the fear of the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 7, 1, he says, having therefore these promises is the way he begins that. And what promises is he talking about? He's talking about the promise, the great promise that God Almighty will be our Father. He will be in us and walk in us and with us through life. Man, what doesn't get any better than that, does it? God loves you and walks with you through these life. And Paul says, listen, I've told you about that. And he's saying, so therefore, because of that, he goes on to say, having those promises, and he's pleading with them, dearly beloved, having therefore these promises, he says, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness. How? How do you do that? In the fear of the Lord is what he says. That is how you mature in holiness, is by fearing God. And look, a holy life is what we have got to have, don't we? <laughs> because what does it say in Hebrews 12? It says, without that, without holiness, it says, nobody, that's me, you, whoever. It says, no man shall what? See the Lord. We've got to have holy lives. And when I preach this in prison, I'll say, hey, you know, would that guy in that cell next to you, they all know, they live with each other like husband and wives. I say, would he call you a holy person? And some of them, it's, they are that way. And some of them, their heads go down. Now, how do we work out our salvation again? We're talking about the fear of the Lord. He says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that's more than just this respect. There should be respect for God, but when you're putting trembling in there, that's more than that. That's an awe. That's a realization of who he is. So the truly saved, redeemed man that knows God is going to be guided by the fear of God. And back, we're getting back to Proverbs. If you would go back there, Proverbs chapter 1, we're talking about the fear of the Lord. That is the theme of Proverbs. That is the guiding principle of the entire book. 
If you don't have that and you approach Proverbs, it's not going to help you out. So 15 times Proverbs talks about the fear of the Lord. It begins in chapter 1. We just read it with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 1.7. In the middle of the book, it says the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. And women, you'll love this one. It ends with the fear of the Lord. A woman that fears the Lord is to be praised, Proverbs 31. That's the way it ends. It's from beginning to end and all throughout in the middle, in between all that. And so if we're going to put all the Proverbs down into one verse, it would be this verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So it's not so much beginning as like a beginning of time as it is, like I said earlier, it's the foundation. Because what I'm saying is you don't start off with the fear of the Lord and then you move on past that. You know, you keep it and reuse it. It's part of your life. It's part of your fabric. It's the beginning, but it's a continuation. It doesn't just start and then somehow you don't have it. It's like learning your ABCs. You know, you have got to learn your ABCs to be able to begin how to read, right? But you don't forget all that as you're reading. You still need to use that, you know? But that's got to be the foundation for it all. If you don't get your ABCs down right, you're going to be, you know, like some of these people that can't read very well. When you go and take a language, I took Greek and Hebrew, the very first thing on the very first page, the beginning is you've got to learn this alphabet. And believe me, the guys that don't, they start struggling as time goes on because they just don't know that alphabet good. So you've got to learn it, and then you just have to continue to use it. And that's the way it is with the fear of the Lord. We start off on that path. It's the straight path. If you get off of that at the beginning, as I've said before, that's the way you're supposed to be going. It's one step the wrong way. You keep going that way without God intervening. And next thing you know, you're not too far away at the beginning. But you're way, way, way off base after a few years. And we've seen that happen. But it's got to be continually one step, the next step. All of it has to be in the fear of the Lord. You can't at any point depart off of that path or you'll lose your water. So you've got to stay on the straight path, right? Because it says in Proverbs 8 that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the fear of the Lord is to hate the evil way. You're not going to go off that path at God. That's what the fear of God will do. It'll keep you on the straight and narrow, as we say, right? So because when a man or woman or any of us, we've seen this happen. We've seen it happen to ourselves in small ways in our lives. When you start to lose that fear of the Lord and think, man, you hear too much grace. And it's like, well, I can do this, but you know what? God's a God of grace, and he'll understand. And you get too much of that, and you start to depart on the evil way. Listen, that's what happened to the man that wrote this book. Didn't take his own wisdom to heart. Because it says this in 1 Kings 11, that his wives, Solomon's wives, turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. And now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. We've got to keep our hearts in the fear of the Lord. So it's written to those that fear the Lord, that want to stay on his paths, the paths of righteousness, and not stray from him. So let me ask you, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, one way we can look, if you look at Proverbs 7 at that verse, 
it tells us something there because much of Proverbs is written in parallel lines. So you'll get line A, you'll get one line, and then you'll get the B line. And the second line, the B line, will a lot of times clarify what is meant by the first line. So we have the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then the B part is, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So it's giving you the opposite of the first part. So a person that fears the Lord, the opposite of that is a fool that despises wisdom. And a fool in the book of Proverbs and all through the Old Testament in the Bible is a morally depraved person. It's someone, it's the opposite of someone that's upright. And it says that he will despise wisdom. And despising wisdom, we're seeing there, that is the opposite of the fear of the Lord. And that word for despise, it is an emotional word that conveys the fool doesn't fear God, but he has contempt for God, his word, and having a relationship with the Lord. He doesn't think he needs it. It's like he's like, you know, I am above instruction. I'm too cool for it. I'm too good for it. Or I'm just too busy for it. That's how contempt can show itself. And he's thinking, I can handle this all myself. I don't need the Lord. I don't need his Proverbs. And that's what he's saying there. A fool despise instruction. And so to explain then what the fear of the Lord, it's the opposite of that. It's an openness to the Lord, an eagerness to please him. Do we see that? You're not going to think, man, I don't need him. I don't want to, I don't have to be around him. I don't have to spend time in his word. And you're thinking I can do it on my own. And we're saying a person that fears the Lord is just the opposite to that. They want to learn from the Lord. They want to walk with the Lord. They want to do what they can to please the Lord. And that was what characterized Abraham. There's a relationship. So we're saying this fear of the Lord, there's a relationship implied in that. So Abraham is called a friend of God, wasn't he? And he was so eager and open to obey the Lord. This is how the fear of the Lord manifested in his life. When God spoke to him something that had to be crazy talk. Take your son, this one you believe for, and love your only son. Take him up there and bind him up and put him on an altar, God said. And Abraham's doing everything he was told. Take that knife, he's got it above there, and it's right before he's ready to plunge it in obedience to God, right before he's getting ready to plunge it in his heart, that it says the angel of the Lord, who is the pre-incarnate Christ, spoke to Abraham as he's getting ready to do that from heaven. Abraham, Abraham, he hears this call, and he stops what he's doing. He says, well, here am I. And the angel of the Lord said, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do anything unto him. Listen to what it says. For now I know that you fear God. <laughs> That's what the fear of the Lord is. Seeing you have not withheld thy son, thine only son. So we want to talk about what it means to love God and to fear God. We've just got the Bible's picture of it. It means if you love God and you fear him, you'll give up anything that's dear to your heart that is against his will that he's speaking to you about. Whatever sin, whatever career, whatever plans you have, you'll sacrifice on the altar willingly to him. That's what it means to fear the Lord. We get that illustration from Abraham. And it's also the fear of the Lord. It's a willingness to turn from evil when God speaks to you and you're willing to change. Job do that. And we've talked about this. Job was a man that God tells the devil, look at my servant Job down there. There is none like him on all the earth. One that fears God and hates 
evil, it says. And in Job 28, 28, it says this. Job himself wrote, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And he says to depart from evil. A person that departs from evil, he says, that is understanding. That is a man or a woman that has understanding. Not someone that continues in evil, but a person that will depart from it. We're talking about what is the fear of the Lord. You read the first five verses of Deuteronomy 6, and it tells you there that fearing God and obeying his commandments is one of the ways that you show that you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not difficult. Another thing is, you're struggling with faith, maybe, in here, and trust in the Lord. Walking in the fear of the Lord will give you faith. Proverbs tells you that, so you're not looking at me. Let's turn over to Proverbs 14, and we'll see it right in here. I won't quote it. We'll read it. Proverbs 14. It will help you in your faith. Proverbs 14, verses 26 and 27, it says, In the fear of the Lord is what? Not just confidence even. It says strong confidence. That's a blessing. And I'm telling you, is it not true? Isn't that 1 John 3? When our hearts don't condemn us, that means you're walking in the fear of the Lord. You can have confidence that whatever you ask from the Lord, he'll give you. It says the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and then you'll be a blessing to your children. Your children will have a place of refuge. And look at verse 27. The fear of the Lord is what? A fountain of life. To depart from what? It'll take you away from the snares of death. You want life in your life? You want to then depart from evil. Depart from the snares of death. Walk in the fear of the Lord and your life will be blessed. But most of all, I would say the fear of the Lord is true humility. So you're in chapter 14. Turn over to chapter 22 and look in verse 4. And it says in Proverbs 22, 4, that by humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. And so, if you have a King James Bible, or I think or most Bibles have the word and in there, but if you'll notice that and is in italics, and that means it is not in the original language. And honestly, I think a better translation would be the result of humility is fear of the Lord, and along with that comes wealth, honor, and life. And so, however you want to look at that translation, it doesn't really matter to me, but humility, what we're seeing there is that humility and the fear of the Lord go hand in hand. And we know that because that is how Solomon got his wisdom. You know, when the Lord came to Solomon, like we read, and he says, what is it that you want? What can I give you? Solomon answered, well, you showed my father David great mercy, according as he walked before you in truth, righteousness, and uprightness of heart. He's saying, you've been faithful. You are the Lord God Almighty. You've been faithful in setting me on this throne. But he's telling him in humility, he's saying, you've given me a responsibility. I recognize who you are, God Almighty. I'm ruling your people. And he's saying, I need help though. I don't have the maturity, the intelligence, or the wisdom to govern Israel. So he's humbling himself before the Lord, isn't he? Solomon, that's what he's doing. And we're saying the fear of the Lord, there's a true humility in a person. And that's how it'll show because they fear God. He needed the wisdom that only God could give. And when he did that, Proverbs 22, 4 is Solomon's life. His humility brought the fear of the Lord, and then God gave him everything else, the wealth, the honor, and life that he wanted. Here's what we're saying. The fear of the Lord, when it comes to a man, it has a twofold effect on your heart. From our side, the first thing, a person that has experienced the fear of God, you're going to see God for who he really is. 
That's how humility comes about. You're going to see God Almighty is vast. He's infinite. His holiness, he's beautiful in his absolute perfection and limitless in power and glory. That's how a person that fears God is going to see him. And then they're going to see themselves for as they really are. Puny. That's what we are. Limited. Dependent in every way for our very next breath, as we've heard, right? Morally, we're defiled by nature and by choice. And so we need everything from God, every atom of grace and forgiveness and wisdom that he can give us. And we are in also great need of the salvation that can only come by what the Lord granted us through that suffering he had on the cross. And that'll put you in the dust before this God Almighty. Or I can say it a whole lot simpler if you didn't catch all of that. There's a simple way of saying it. There is God and you ain't him. You realize that, that will put a fear in you. I liked what this C.S. Lewis said. I'm not a big C.S. Lewis fan in all ways, but I thought this was very good. Listen to this. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. I like that. In God, you come up against, I would say, someone who is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. And he says, unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, he says, you don't know God at all. Now, I thought that was a very good statement. So I would say this, fearing God means you know that he is all-powerful. We can't resist him. I always like that illustration a man used to use. It's like a person that doesn't fear God and, and just has no respect for him is, is like a little ant down there on the ground and you're walking along and shaking its fist at you. A little like he's going to do anything. I mean, that's like what it is. You know, you've got to see to fear God. He is all power. There's, we have nothing against him. And he's all seeing. You're, we're not getting away with anything. And he's just person that fears God knows he will punish sin and a person that fears God knows that the day of judgment is coming we have another good illustration of that early on in the book of Acts with Ananias and Sapphira because all of those four things I just said they forgot all of it or apparently never learned it and we know that God judged them for lying and that seems pretty cruel doesn't it what happened it's like man did they only get one chance or no chance one chance, and God made them a dramatic example to the early church. And he's telling them, you all need to know who I am. He didn't do those people wrong, did he? But he says, you need to know that I'm all-powerful, all-seeing, holy, and deserving of all respect. And so they just happened to become an example for the benefit of the rest of the church. Because here's what happened as a result of that. Word got out about that, and it says, and great, we're talking about the fear of the Lord, he taught the church that early on. It says, And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things about what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. And Brother Hamilton's talked about that many times. I think that would work. God gave somebody a word of knowledge and called out somebody on their sin and something happened. I'm telling you, things would straighten up real quick in all of our lives, wouldn't it? It really would, and it very well could happen. Because anybody in that church at that time thought twice about lying to God. That's what the fear of the Lord is. And we understand that, don't we? That, that's what it is. That you mess with God and it could be trouble. And you say, so where is the love in that? 
Where is the love in that? Well, I'm just telling you what the New Testament says. But there is love in that, okay? Because if you read later on in the book of Acts about the church, it says this, that then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and they were edified. They were built up. If Ananias and Sapphira would have got away with what they did, it had been torn down. Believe me. That's a whole sermon in itself that we'll preach one day. But it said they were edified, and it said the church was walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Ghost. In that, they were multiplied. Both was going on. The church is walking in the fear of God and also in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. And you're saying, that seems like a contradiction. So like Brother Hamilton's talked so many times, no, it's not. And so children that are raised in a loving Christian home know that there is both fear and comfort, holy respect and love, and that they're not incompatible, right? That's what we know. We need to remember that God is a loving father, isn't he? Do we all amen that? And he will chastise us. But my children, they never looked up at me when I spanked them for something they did wrong and say, hey, Dad, do I need to pack my bags and find somewhere else to live? Never ask me that. So the fact that they're my children, I, want, I love them and want them to be with me. That's not the question. So the message, though, that your child should get if you discipline them properly is, it's because I love you that you need to learn. And that's what Proverbs and the fear of the Lord is all about. Learning, being instructed in right and wrong, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And like we read his word for Israel, he's going to put his fear in their hearts for their good. It's for their good. And so Proverbs, if you read it, which would be good to do, it continually has chapters that begin with, my son. And that's the way the people are addressed. In other words, it's like a father instructing his son. Look, there's all these dangers out there. There's these situations in the world. You're a simple person, a simple youth. You don't know what to do. I'm going to instruct you, and here is how you can deal with things. Here's pitfalls to avoid. And that all has to be done, though, in the fear and respect. You would fear and respect your own father. I had one of my children. I try to avoid those lectures to where, you know, your kids are rolling their eyes on the inside. I'll just say I got girls and boys, and I have some certain things I want to say. You know, there's wolves out there, and you need to watch out for them. You know, I, I grew up in that atmosphere. And I had one of my children come to me, and they said, Listen, Dad, I listened to what you said, and I did this, that, or the other. Oh, man, that didn't make me upset at all. I'm blessed by that because they're saying, Hey, I'm listening to my instruction that you gave me, and that's what Proverbs is saying. Listen to the Father's instruction, my son, my daughter. I'm just trying to save you. I'm trying to put you on the paths of life and keep you from destruction. And so that's the whole purpose. So this message I'm preaching today is to encourage us as God's children to hear the voice of a concerned father speaking to us in Proverbs, a father giving wise counsel and dealing with life. And so Solomon, the wisest man that ever walked this earth outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, he summed it all up like this. He says, this is in Ecclesiastes, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. All of life is summed up in this. Fear God and keep his commandments. He says that is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. 
You know, there was one time this preacher went and, and had this revival. He preached and had all kinds of success. And he came home and they said, oh, man, you just had a great revival. I'll bet you that was just great. You're reveling in that. He goes, I'm wanting eternity because I realize for me as a preacher and what I preach and to these people, he says, I want eternity stamped on my eyeballs because that day of judgment is coming and I know it. And I want to be ready. That's what that minister said. It doesn't matter all the accolades and how great they think I am. And that's what we need to remember, all of us, young and old, and especially it becomes more clear the older you get, that that day of judgment is coming. And it's imperative that we walk in the fear of the Lord because none of us know where we're going to be tomorrow. And that day, that's going to be an awesome and incredible day to stand before the holy God of the universe and give account for our lives this last week we lived, the last year, these, this family we've raised. Incredible. And so that's what it says. Every secret thing is going to be brought into judgment, whether good or whether it's evil. So Proverbs deals with lust, a lot of things. Lust, anger, the tongue, backbiting, laziness, money, lying, raising children, finding a wife, pride, and on and on and on. And so when you come to Proverbs with the fear of the Lord operating in your life, it'll help you and guide you into how to please God in all of those areas. It really will. There's a lot of wisdom there. And so you say, hey... Young man, Lord, I gave my life to you. I want to please you. I want to have your fear in me. Help me with my anger. And I'm saying Proverbs has a lot to say. There's all kinds of verses in Proverbs dealing with anger. He that is soon angry will deal foolishly. Or he that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he that rules his spirit than he that takes a city. But here's the thing with those Proverbs, you've got to meditate on them, rolling around in your mind. You're not going to learn them by one sitting. And it's the thing to where you miss it. You're like, man, I need to go back and remember that Proverbs. Lord, remind me of that. That's the way it works. But the help is there. We don't need counseling. Proverbs can be our counselor, that in the Holy Spirit. Or like I said, somebody that's got this problem with lust. Don't know what to do, man. I'm wanting to get the victory over it. And it's things got a grip on me. Read Proverbs 5 to 7. There's a lot to be said there. But it starts off this way. My son, attend unto my wisdom and bow thine ear to mine understanding. If you don't start there, if you don't start where you're going to slowly read it, slowly meditate on it, slowly see what is this telling me? And you're just going to read through it. Well, it didn't help me any. And I'm right back on the Internet looking at pornography. I'm saying you've got to spend some time there. Because it goes on to say, For the lips of a strange woman drop as an honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil. And when I read that, I get that. They used to show those pictures of Marilyn Monroe with just this lusty lip, you know. And it's just trying to draw you in. And he's saying, that's what happens. That's what happens, young men, with these women. And this thing that you've got to get on the Internet, and you don't feel like you can resist it. He's telling you there. That's dripping like a honeycomb. You need to stay away from it. And like I said, it's just the extended version of Matthew 5. Jesus just condenses it in Matthew 5, and he says, if you look with lust on a woman, you know, you've committed adultery in your heart, you're going to go to hell. And so you're better off to cut your hand, pull out your eye, chop off your foot. That thing you think is so dear to you, this lust, he's saying you have got to just cut it off, not toy around and play with it. But if you read Proverbs, it's saying, in essence, the same thing. Because Jesus says, if you don't, you will end up in hell. If that is how, what you practice, how you live your life. So at the end of Proverbs, he ends it like this. 
talking about that strange woman in Proverbs. He says, but her end, that strange woman with her mouth smoother than oil, her end is bitter as wormwood. So listen to the wisdom there. Look at the end. Before you get all your passions worked up, think about where that's taken you. Bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. And he says, her feet, this woman that you're just like a dumb ox being led, just, she's just dragging you around wherever she wants to take you. He says, her feet goes down to death and her steps take hold on hell. That's Proverbs. That'll help you. That'll help you a lot. It really will. Take it to heart. It really will. Practical ways. I just gave two examples there to overcome two of the biggest problems mankind has. Anger and lust. That's why Jesus deals with them first in the Sermon on the Mount. Universal problems that are taking over America. So I'm saying spend some time in Proverbs. That's for me too. You know, I read that Billy Graham for years in his ministry, I don't know for how long, but it wasn't just for a little while, but for years in his ministry would read a chapter in Proverbs a day. So there's 31 chapters, and for most months, that would work out pretty good. He'd get through the whole book of Proverbs, and then he'd start right back over again. And I'd say for a man in ministry, that is a good way to go. But I'd say that's good for everybody. We're all going to gain from that, aren't we? We would if we did that. If you had the time to do it, I think it would be a good thing. So in conclusion, I'd like to say this. Let's approach Proverbs that way. It says in 1 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That's why God has given us Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And let's also pray in light of everything we've talked about that God will put a fear of him in our hearts to depart from evil because it's a blessing, not something to be avoided. The fear of the Lord, it says in Proverbs 14, we read it, is a fountain of life. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. Let that sink in. That's what we want. That's what we need. And it causes you to depart from the snares of death or the fear of the Lord tends to life Proverbs 19, and he that has it shall abide satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil. So you got a concern. I don't want to get sick and die someday or whatever. He says, well, the fear of the Lord, it will tend to life. And you'll abide satisfied. You won't be visited with evil. But the fear of the Lord is where it all begins, isn't it? That's where it's got to start. That's what we're saying. That's the name of the, the message. The fear of the Lord is the beginning, the foundation of true wisdom or knowledge. And as we said, and we'll end with this, the fear of the Lord is if you're a Christian and you make it in, that's where it's all going to end. Because as Solomon said, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. And that's the whole duty of man. We do that, it'll all be well. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just ask that you'll put it on our hearts and in our hearts to have a true, healthy fear of you, Lord, and that you'll open our eyes to see that when we depart from you and we don't walk in your fear and in your ways, that the end of that is death. And we want to partake, Lord, of the fountain of your life, and that comes through the fear of you. And I ask you'll speak to all of us in that way and give us all of us a desire to study the book of Proverbs to know how we can properly live in this wicked world that we're in. And I thank you, Father, that you'll do that for this church here. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen.